Hello, Valparaiso. This is Allison Schutte. Willow Walsh. And Reagan Skaggs. And you're listening to Welcome Project Radio. The Welcome Project collects first-person stories and pairs them with facilitated conversation to help participants forge stronger ties within and across communities. We vision a world in which people are curious about and actively seek to engage with those who are different from themselves. We are proudly underwritten by Asana Yoga Center and Roots Market Cafe, two great ways to feel good this season. They're located online at asanacenter.com and rootsmarketcafe.com. And thanks to Kelly and Michael Marakna, who believe in supporting diversity, learning, and growth. The music is provided by WVLP's very own Paul Schreiner. Thanks, Paul. So today we bring you two stories from the Welcome Project's archive titled Residential Segregation and Racial Inequality and Black Mecca. So, okay, Allison, you chose these stories. Do you want to talk about um, why you decided to bring these ones into conversation? So we're wrapping up Black History Month, and I thought it would be a good time for us to bring our attention to black history in the region. We have on this show talked about residential segregation before that particular story by uh, historian um, Heath Carter. But I think it's really important to re-remind ourselves of the ways in which Gary, and and Gary as an example of other American cities, has um, segregation built into it. So that when we're thinking about history and the lives of African-Americans within American history, we get that larger context. At the same time, I feel like I I worry about always having Black History Month be looking at the trauma that Black Americans have endured. So I wanted our second story, Black Mecca, um, to be looking at Black resistance, Black political power, and Black joy. So that... That second story will um, be taking us up to uh, Mayor Hatcher's election in the 1968. So it's still history. (laughs) More every day, it gets to be more and more history, I suppose. For my students, like that's ancient history now. For me, it's like my parents' history. So it's interesting. But yeah. (laughs) All right. So this first story, um, it's historian Heath Carter discussing how post-war policies and practices, including the GI Bill, redlining and restrictive covenants, created a northern Jim Crow. This is titled Residential Segregation and Racial Inequality.
This is WVLPLP 103.1 FM and streaming online at WVLP.org. You are here with Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio. I'm Allison Schutte, here with Reagan Skaggs and Willa Walsh. And today we have pulled some stories from our Welcome Project archive, specifically in the Flight Paths Initiative, to um, take a look at Black history in the region in honor of Black History Month. So we have heard this story before. We've talked about it a little bit before. I, I'm curious what jumps out at you first today. Yeah, it's like it's it's so hard to hear these stories, I think, more than once, too, because it's just just sort of being faced with the injustice of it. But I think I, I'll admit, I've been talking about redlining for a while, and I... I feel like every time we talk about it, I learn a little bit more about it. And I feel like from this story, I understand it even more. And the fact that it's, that it was like a map in which like the redlined areas, which were predominantly black neighborhoods, were deemed too risky. So it's not that you could only get a mortgage in those areas. It was that you wouldn't be able to get a mortgage in those areas. So you'd be paying rent in the only neighborhood you'd be allowed to live in at an extremely high premium rate than like white middle-class neighborhoods. And that was just another layer of injustice that I Mm -hmm. did, that I just uncovered. Boils my blood. Yeah, and you couldn't have, you couldn't get a loan to um, like develop your property, your house either. So even if you did own in a redlined neighborhood, the bank isn't going to give you the money that you need to um, like re-roof or put on an addition or something like that. So oh. it really is constraining um, how uh, black Americans and others who were in red line neighborhoods were able to work with their property, even if they did already own it. Uh, I think the big thing that sticks out for me is how the actual language of the GI Bill is, like um, Heath Carter said, pretty neutral pretty, yeah like quote unquote, he said colorblind specifically um so there's no mention against like oh well if then situations there's nothing like that but it doesn't matter because at the state and local levels we have these if then statements that like kind of and again i don't know if this is the intention of the bill but that kind of step in for where there isn't that kind of language in the bill it doesn't matter because at the state and local level we have the language to bar people from that yeah or we have the conditions that we've invested in as a country prior to that Mm -hmm. right so black americans were not allowed to go to white colleges and universities so they developed their own um, colleges and universities but then that's like how much capacity do you have for that Mm -hmm. and how well funded are those colleges and universities so even if you could use the if you could get access to the money to go to college for free, then you have to have a place to go to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that it's so easy for Americans to, and maybe it's not just Americans, but like humans, I- individuals in particular, to think like, oh, if it's written in such a way, that's evidence that we've fix the problem. And so if something, if a community like the black community is not flourishing, then that must be their fault. Mm. Because look, this is colorblind legislation. So it's a real, it's a real, um, I think, limitation on the part of maybe even the, the lawmakers who thought that they had, they were making progress on behalf of, um, 
black Americans in that legislation to not see the the way that it would play out on the ground. Mm-hmm. Do you all um, mind if we go back to the beginning and just noting how segregation is different than in the South? I feel mm-hmm. like that's something um, that I've I've heard before, so it's not new to me, and yet I'm always surprised when like some students in my classes feel like the Jim Crow stuff, oh, that all happened in the South. And and they don't actually know the story of Northern segregation or that um, MLK, when he came to Chicago, was sort of horrified <laughs> by how much more violent um, it was for him to be protesting than it had been even in the South. And that's not saying nothing because yeah. of what they were encountering by way of violence in the South. So how did you hear Heath talking about the, the, the differences um, in the way that segregation worked in the North? Uh, between him and just like other, like reading, like going to school, all the other good stuff, um, it seems like, it, again, it seems like this, I don't know for sure, but it seems like Southern segregation was a lot more complete. Um, like you were not only, like you might interact with people that are black or people that are white, but it's going to be in very specific ways. So like Southern black people, they can maybe be your maid or they can maybe provide like a service, but they're always kind of, it's like living in a very separate like space. They have like almost a lot of the times like a separate general store, like a whole separate sphere a lot of the time, except for when they interact in a very controlled way. Um, like that's just how Jim Crow seemed again from an outsider who is also 25 (laughs) seemed to like have seemed to enact more in the South. Whereas in the North, there is not more subtle versions of it because it's the same thing, but it's you, you can work with the white people at the, the Ford plant. You guys can work there. Um, you guys technically have the same job even, but you are going to get paid for less, paid less uh, there, and you're probably not going to be allowed to be a part of the union. But you can live, you can live near enough to the Ford plant. You can access some of the city things as long as you stay on your side of the beach. Like, it's a weird. It's just like there's more rules. There's more layers, and the rules are a little less obvious. So like it's easier to stumble almost like not that those rules are appropriate, but it's easier to see where that blurring would happen and where there's more room for that. But ultimately they're both segregation and they're both bad just to be extremely clear. (laughs) (laughs) I always think back to the, like this tweet that I saw that was just like how Northern racism relies on people believing that the Southern U S is like, an infinitely more racist hellscape mm-hmm. than the North mm-hmm. and like how that sort of, I don't, I don't even know. Just like, I th- I think like in the North, you can just sort of point to that and be like, well, you know, at least we're not that. Mm-hmm. But, and I, then I think that just sort of lets us off the hook of all of the different multi-layered ways mm-hmm. in which we screw people over based on race. Yeah. Just cause you say it nicer. doesn't mean that you're being nicer. Yeah. <laughs> And that's really kind of what I think a lot of Northern Jim Crow, at least again, outsider, 25 years old. (laughs) That's what a lot of it seemed to have looked like is, yeah, just stay on your side of the beach. Yeah, stay in your neighborhood. Mm. Yeah, stay in your thing. Um, Whereas, like, again, Southern Jim Crow seems to have been a lot more, like, complete, like a lot more separation. 
Well, I actually hear he's saying something slightly different in that he says oftentimes in the South, black people and white people live alongside one another. And I don't know if he means by neighborhood so much, but I feel like, you know, part of the story of so many of um, people we've interviewed with flight paths, uh, if they're black, is the story of their um, families coming from the South, the American mm-hmm. South, right? So this black migration that happens um, mostly after World War II. I'm thinking that if there's a, a socialization, I mean, it's grounded in enslavement, so it's mm-hmm. not a healthy socialization, but there's something familiar about blacks and whites and maybe a familiar racial dynamic too that includes power and oppression. But I think what I hear Heath saying here is that when blacks migrate from the south to the north, I almost hear implied like a like white people in the north are not familiar with black lives, black culture. Mm-hmm. And so there's this othering and distancing such that um I mean, a lot of that has to do with what Heath is saying is um, residential segregation that's based on the redlining maps and all of that kind of stuff. But there's also a social, um, like a social grease that's not there. And so um, maybe, I don't, know, I don't, I don't want to say that, but it just, it seems like racism in the North is hidden and I would think that the, the black families that were migrating from the South are probably like the ethnic white communities that are coming from Europe. Like you want to be with your people, right? So you can have a, a home and a neighborhood that feels safe and familiar. So there's an element of, um, I don't want to say segregation that's self-chosen because I feel like segregation is actually imposed on you from the outside. And there's Mm. something about that that we just need to save for that term. But the way that we affiliate with our groups, there can be something very positive about that, right? Um, You want to be with people whose culture you share so that there is like when you're walking around in your neighborhood, you're not concerned always about like safety or difference, things like that. Like boys Um, town. Say some. Say what you mean. Oh, by like that. Boys Town. Oh, don't. Just like yeah. Just what like, is Boys Town? I don't know. Like all our <laughs> listeners know what that means. What do you mean? I don't know. I don't even know. I just I assume that there's some sort of like gay enclave in every major city, and like there's a reason for that. I mean, I typically feel sort of excluded from that as a gay female, but like there's just something about like grouping with your community and knowing that like oh yes, I can hold my husband's hand down the street or you know, and like it's fine. Nobody's gonna like jump me. Well there will be people here that care if something bad happens to me like that you know it's just like just Mm -hmm. the intention of it yeah so I don't know I I think I've lost my (laughs) train of thought from where this first started but just thinking that when my students don't understand that racism has been as much a part of northern life as it was a part of southern life I think that we then um, don't realize how much more work we have to do yet. Mm-hmm. And this stories that we're hearing today aren't going to take us up to the um, desegregation of schools and the busing. But like when that happened in the North, it was like all hell broke loose. Mm-hmm. So like white people were not going to let um, black children come into their schools and they were not going to send their white kids into black schools. So it's like if something in the North 
um, because the residential segregation was so strong, allowed Northerners to avoid looking, white Northerners to avoid looking at their racism until it was challenged. Mm -hmm. And then it was obvious and apparent in ways that seem very similar to the mm -hmm. South. And that's still going on today. And any, like our schools are now as segregated, if not more segregated than they were during the civil rights era. Um, so the, the, in, the attempt to integrate schools and have equitable resources for all schools and all kids is just an ongoing fight that I think is rooted in this history. Yeah. I do think that's also a large, I don't know if you, I don't want to say it's a disservice, but there, I don't have a lot of words like appropriate words right now, I feel, but, um, the more subtle nature, I, if we can agree to call it that, or the less explicit nature, I guess, of Jim Crow segregation, um, or at least awareness of it, I think is also kind of a major disservice just because it makes it harder to fight against something that is not as well advertised. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's difficult it's not, but it, it can be difficult on a structural level for person A to point, or group A to point to group B and be like, hey, this is a historical problem. And then we can do things like point to the GI Bill, for example, and be like, well, this has no language in it, specifically saying that people of color, specifically black people, are not permitted to take part in these services. So you you are the problem. Right. Um, right. This is your fault. Um, and. I feel like that is where a lot more of our racism is now, both like on the like legislative, like systemic level and on like interpersonal levels. It's like, okay, well, but this doesn't explicitly say that you aren't allowed to do this or that you have to do this. So therefore, this is your problem. And I think we're kind of continually stuck. Like I feel like we mm -hmm. went more towards as a nation, not everywhere, obviously, um, but I feel like as a nation, we are just continuing the Northern model of racism and Jim Crow. This is WVLP 103.1 FM and streaming live online at WVLP.org. You're with us at Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio. I'm Allison Schutte here with co-hosts Willow Walsh and Reagan Skaggs. And today is our day of looking into the Flight Paths Initiative archives in order to pull out some elements of black history in the region for Black History Month. So should we talk about some of the actual other ways in which segregation was enforced? Um, we haven't talked about restrictive covenants yet, and I think that gets less attention maybe than redlining, um, in part because redlining is so actually active today, like uh, in the sense that those maps are still embedded into the neighborhoods, but re restrictive covenants were actually declared illegal. So in some ways, I think we've moved beyond thinking about them, except when we look at history. But do you all have a sense of what those were and how they were used? Weren't they essentially, it could be individual homeowners or a group of homeowners. I think this is kind of how some housing associations can yeah. be. Um, where they essentially agree or they agree as a group or they put in their individual like mandate for selling their house like you have to be white you can't or you can't be jewish or like there's like stipulations to selling your home so like i won't sell my home to a person of color and that means you also can't sell your home to a person of color and we're going to keep this neighborhood white and protestant 
like that kind of vibe. Yeah, yeah, that is my understanding too. And I think you can still find the original deeds that have that language in them. It would be, I, I don't know like how and when a deed might have taken that language out or if you just look back far enough on the title of the home that you own, like would it still potentially be there today because yeah. people don't bother to strike that from the record. Do you think there's maybe less attention on that kind of thing because there is more of an individual like onus like you can these people are still alive like it'd be a lot of them anyway it'd be very easy to point at people who have done this does that like no i'm serious like do you think maybe that's part of why there's less i don't think i understand what you mean yet like somebody could get sued you mean for having it in their title or in their not even that i don't know i guess this is partially coming from uh you were just talking about like desegregation of schools. Um, and there's a lot of like, I grew up with this in my podunk small town history lessons. There's a lot of pictures of white people in particular uh, protesting the desegregation of schools mm. um, and other things. And recently um, on social media, I've been seeing people going like, these people are still alive like, and finding yeah. them. Like whose grandma is this? <laughs> like, and some, they have found some of these people. Um, and I don't, I'm not saying that's appropriate or inappropriate. I, I don't have enough knowledge to make a statement on that. But I, I do wonder if, like, maybe why it's, it, one, it's easier to focus on systemic things. And we also should focus, in my opinion, more on systemic mm. things just because, like, we got to take those things down. Um, but I do think that there's a general, like, a lot of shying away from... Like holding people responsible? Holding individuals or looking at where that came from mm. on an individual level. I think that... I don't know, maybe this is prominent other places, but I feel like a lot of Americans don't tend to be comfortable doing that. And again, I don't have enough knowledge to know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I, do you think that might be part of it? I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, like that's, it's a compelling thesis mm-hmm. to think about. I also just feel like these kinds of documents are such a, like when you are not actively using them, in this case, to sell a house. They're, mm-hmm. like, in a drawer somewhere, mm-hmm. you know, or at a county house in, like, a filing cabinet that's, like... But you can get them. Like, my mom has a historical home that she loves very much and she's obsessed with, which she should be. She bought a house. It's impressive. Congrats, my mom. Hey, <laughs> Congrats, mom. my mom, like, 10 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent job, mother. Um, but she... Uh, it's a beautiful house. She loves her house. And she, like, it's not hard. Like, you just, you go to the courthouse and you're like, hey, this is my house. And I want to see all the past, like, owners. And, like, they gave her, like, this whole little document. And, like, it's not that crazy, I guess is what I'm saying. No, it's certainly not crazy or hard. But I, I'm thinking, like, of myself as a lazy person, like, who, <laughs> or whose whose attentions are elsewhere. Oh, yeah. Like, it takes that that takes effort to actually go to the courthouse and, and do. Um, and if I'm, if I don't need something in the immediate moment, like my attention's going to be where the immediate need is. Okay. Um, I, I'm not excusing that at oh, absolutely, all, but absolutely. just thinking about like other reasons why we might not be thinking about the restrictive covenants as much because mm-hmm. they're out of sight, out of mind. I mean, I suppose redlining is out of sight, out of mind in some sense, too. So, Well, this is my friend, uh, my beloved friend, who I'm not accusing of anything, for the record. She bought a house recently. Um, she bought a house in a suburb of Chicago in Illinois, obviously. <laughs> and um, the only way that... And her spouse makes, like, 
a, a fair amount of money. And the only way, like we were talking about it, the only way she felt like she was going to be able to afford a house in the area that she wanted to live in was one, to be in the suburbs, and two, to be a part of a housing association. Hmm. Um, so I guess housing associations are just also like extra on my mind, but they have like very specific rules, especially in regards to like aesthetic mm-hmm. and like yeah. anything that they want to do, especially to the outside of their house and a little bit on what they want to do to the inside of the house. Um, which, you know, relatively controlling and something that like, a lot of my friends who are poor <laughs> like make jokes like, oh, at least I don't have a at least yeah. I don't live in a house yeah. in a housing association. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, <and> I <laughs> yeah. at least we don't got a housing association house. Um, <laughs> but like, they're just, I just feel like there's so much more history to housing associations. Mm-hmm. And I know that covenants are part of it. And I feel like it's maybe like, it's viewed a lot of times by people that I know and just, like, on the internet or, like, things that I've read as, like, an annoyance. But, like, I kind of feel like it can't just be an annoyance. Like Because why are they still in place then? Yeah, mean, like, it's just, it's a little intense. It's a little controlling. And, like, I know I know that a lot of them started out with these covenants. Yeah, I know that a lot of I them feel. started out this particular way. Um, so, I don't know. I just... I mean, it's it. interesting because um, Heath here is talking about... Um, the GI Bill as the way that white middle white Americans made their mm-hmm. way into the middle class, and I I wonder if he would if he were here, if I mean isn't the middle class actually coming into being post World War II? Like, Pretty is much. there even a middle class prior to that? So then it seems to me if if that's the case, these housing associations including the restrictive covenants, they're about creating the culture mm-hmm. of what the middle class ought to be, which is why this attention to this is what a neighborhood should look like. Mm-hmm. And you can and can't have this in your yard. So it it's like a they're creating an identity that they can recognize themselves by, and then that can be used to judge other people against their identity right mm-hmm. so um i'm assuming there's something a little bit emergent about that as well as also ideological like emergent meaning it is a, a kind of organic outgrowth of what white people at that time kind of felt like they wanted but sh- shaped by ideological um forces in terms of this is what you ought to be like that mm-hmm. they would be getting they would be getting messages about their identity even as they're like shaping it themselves um, in a really way that's hard to parse out and take apart. Um, I don't know if that's why housing associations are still in place like it's a kind of um, tether back to a certain kind of identity that's been earned. You know, so like I'm, I've worked my way up to this kind of place. I like, I don't know. I feel like I see positives from it. Like the idea of like, you know, like I want to make sure that there are like, there's a Polish area in this city or like, you know, that there's always going to be a Polish restaurant here or something like that. Like, I feel like that makes sense. And then other aspects, like, I don't know if you've seen like, there's like different target Okay, I don't, I'm going to try to explain this. There's, like, something in, like, zoning that you can say, like, the facades of buildings need to match with what's around it. And so, like, you have, like, some targets that are ours that are just ugly targets because we're in, like, urban sprawl Valparaiso, so they just look ugly and normal. But there's some that are in, like, Colorado Springs that just, like, have this, like, 
cabin mountainside facade mm-hmm. on them that like blends into the other thing. So it's like I can understand from like aspects like that, like you're wanting to like maintain vibrancy and roots in your neighborhood and you're also wanting to like make sure that this is a space that other people want to enjoy but then at the same time it's like these housing associations to me are just rooted in white supremacy and there's like no way around that but i think like this goes back to that sort of idea that like northern racism has like reagan like you were saying it's all these like complex layers that sort of come together and like so it's all of these individual housing deeds that potentially excluded people of color from coming in there and it's like so there's one aspect of it but it's just like it's so hard to sort of wrap your mind around it I don't know because it's like if I were to take this to a conservative family member and I'm envisioning them and I were to say like okay this is why reparations need to happen in this aspect because black veterans who returned from the war were not able to take advantage of the GI Bill and he would probably say like no everybody was promised this it's not my fault that black people you know he would probably say like didn't create enough colleges or didn't work hard enough to be in the houses that they wanted and so it's like it's so hard because in order to sort of disassemble all of the the racial disparities you would have to sort of go i think line by line and like talk about how all of these Mm -hmm. different factors came together to sort of put white people in a better spot today than like their black counterparts in the same neighborhoods and so I think that's what makes it so much harder to talk about like I feel like just as a northerner like my impression of the southern racism is it, it seems a little bit easier to sort of approach or dismantle just because there might be some more visual reminders more cues there but it's just like I feel like the way that it operates in the north and I'm sure maybe nowadays is just as complex in the north and south but just like all these different layers and injustices that have sort of accumulated over time, it would be really hard to sort of parse all of those things out and like have a conversation because like to note all of the different disparities, you would have to say to people uh, in power, and those would be like, you know, mostly white men here and already in a position of oppressor, you would have to get them to see all of the injustices without being defensive about their own experiences at the same time because then you would say like okay black people didn't have access in the same way in the gi bill and they would say i got fired from my job because they hired union people or something like Mm -hmm. you know there would be that sort of like tit for tat like you know oh i don't want to hear about their injustice look at my injustice and i think that sort of becomes that foundational playing field that makes it really hard to sort of move on from because we can't sort of account for the disparities in a racially motivated way without sort of white people putting aside the disparities that they've, not disparities, but like the oppression that they've experienced in the same way. I don't know if that makes sense, but. No, it does. This is WVLPLP 103.1 FM in Valparaiso, community supported radio, also streaming live from WVLP.org. We rely on donations from individuals, businesses, and other organizations in order to continue to spread the word that ongoing, volunteer-driven local media leads to a better community. Please consider supporting the station by visiting our website, wvlp.org support. Donations are tax-deductible. We'd sure appreciate it. 
This is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio with me, Allison Schutte, Willow Walsh, and Reagan Skaggs. And Reagan, I interrupted you, so I hope you remember what you wanted to say. I do. I'm <laughs> okay. sorry. Um, but I think, I don't know, I, a, a click happened for me I, okay, just now. Awesome. <laughs> but what I think is happening is we have traded a lot, not all of it, just to be very explicit, but we have traded a lot of our social racism for economic racism, mm. is I think what most of this boils down to crap that's so true because like i was also i know we've done a story along these lines and um i've also like read stuff along these lines and then i think jane elliott i don't remember if that's quite her name but she was very famous she was a teacher and she did the brown eye blue eye experiment with white children in her classroom um was also talking about this uh, i mean a while ago obviously (laughs) but i read an article um where people talk about like well yeah no like i didn't necessarily super oppose particularly black people but people of color in general and um to some extent some european whites living in my neighborhood but they would have my house wouldn't have been worth as much i wouldn't have been able to sell my house and reliably buy another house off of the money if i had allowed a black person or a a different whatever minority in my community i wouldn't have been able to do it um and i think that that's like a lot of a lot of it, a lot of big motivation for people who are like, just like passively white supremacist people, like, you know, as many of us are, was just like, well, the bottom line is this. Yeah, this, so what's so interesting, though, is this is the history that created that stereotype mm-hmm. that my property value goes down mm-hmm. if a black family moves into my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Like, that did not have to be the case, yeah. and it actually isn't about the identity of the black homeowners. Mm-hmm. It's actually about the choice that white people made yep. to devalue their homes and sell it for less under the pressure of fear that um, they won't be able to sell if they don't sell now and sell below asking value. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, maybe that's what you're saying, but like, um, yeah, like how, I think this is what you were saying too, Willow. Like, it's really hard to get people to see that the ideas they have in their heads are not um, real, they're constructed, and that that actually is due to um, policies like redlining and then blockbusting, which I don't think that Heath mentioned in this particular story, but blockbusting would have been when agents like that wanted to make money, white agents who wanted mm-hmm. to make money off of real estate would go and try to, sometimes they would even pay um, a black mom with her, their kids to walk through the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And then they would, the white realtors would canvas the neighborhood saying, did you see, did you see, did you see who's like moving into the neighborhood? And so they would stir up that fear in order to um, initiate the white flight, um, which then ends up in devaluing property, which then somehow gets associated with the character of black people or other people of color or um, could be class-based too in terms of white ethnic immigrants at the time. But it's both, right? Because like there's assumptions, like they used the social power of racism to encourage more economic racism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. But, and, and now, I, I thought that's what you were saying too, right? Like mm-hmm. now in 1980 or 2000 or 2020, white people still have this concept of who's who owns a home is how that property value is established Mm -hmm. and that's 
I mean, if you just stop to think about it for a while, that's really crazy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like that the property value is in the owners as opposed to in the building itself. Or the piece of land that it's (laughs) on. Or the land that it's on, right? Did you see the TikTok where the black uh, husband and wife, they had um, their male white colleague come in and like do the homeowner like walkthrough when they were selling their house and it was valued like over a hundred thousand more because the white colleague was in there like posing as the homeowner i'm gonna throw it uh, wait it's so it was like a real it was a it, real they were trying to sell their house it got like it was like way it was, they were like on the suburb of a city or something and it was way under market when they came in as the you know like the black owners and they were like hey colleague white guy will you come in and be here for the housing negotiation and the the white colleague came in and it was the housing specter came in i don't know the, 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 mm. there's too many details there for me but like something about like how the the white colleague came in and then the house was valued 100,000 more than mm. when the black owners we're negotiating yeah. for themselves or, yeah. Mm-hmm. So 2023, there you have it, folks. <laughs> Shall we play our second story for the yes. day? Let's yes. play Black Mecca. 67 is when Mayor Hatcher won. And I was at Bailey then. That was an exciting time for me because on the weekends, we would go out and go door to door. There was a guy named uh, Lou Drinkert. And Lou took the young people and and he would take us in his car over to Operation Push in Chicago. And he would take us going door to door for Mayor Hatcher. But I was very excited about my dad and my mom worked very hard, especially my dad worked really hard in the campaign. And that night was one that I'll never forget when he did win. And I remember my mom and I were at home trying to listen to the radio. My dad was down there. and he came and got us and 21st and Broadway was closed off completely. And people were just there, just excited and happy. But I do remember on that bus that next morning, everybody was excited. Even the people whose parents probably weren't for the mayor at this point, everybody was for Mayor Hatcher, okay. And we were all excited and especially to being bused to Glen Park and Bailey School because there was tension. I think our energy, our positive and excited energy was making them uncomfortable. And I don't think they were, and they showed on their face that they weren't happy about it. You know, a lot of people talk a lot about Mayor Hatcher winning from mayor. And of course that was spectacular. And he was the first elected in, of a major city, but before him was Mayor Katz who was Jewish, and they were equally, people in this community were equally not happy about there being a Jewish mayor. So there was a a time, just a feeling going on during that time, um, in 66, 67, before the mayor, when he won in 67, but going, that whole time frame right there was not, it was just a, a time of transition, but not everybody was happy about the transition. That period of time, growing up in Gary, Indiana, I would not want to be anywhere else in the world. Because as a result of him becoming the mayor, it became like literally the black mecca for this country. And everybody wanted to come to Gary, no matter who they were, if they were an entertainer of some sort, if they were involved in politics, you name it, they came. 
And so I was able to, you know, be up and close with these people. I don't think I would have that opportunity anywhere else. This is WVLP 103.1 FM and streaming online at WVLP.org. You're with us at Listen Up. Welcome Project Radio. I'm Allison Schutte, here with Willa Walsh and Reagan Skaggs. And we are talking um, in the second half of the show about the story Black Mecca from our Flight Paths Initiative. And this is one um, Gary resident recounting her experience. Um, I guess we don't exactly know what how old she was at the time, if she's like at the end of middle school. I'm assuming if she's going to Glen Park or Bailey, it's, she's, she's probably not in high school yet when this is happening. So recounting what it felt like to have Mayor Hatcher, who was the first black, Amer- uh, black mayor of a city that size, alongside of, um, shoot, now I've forgotten the name of the, the there was a black mayor in, in Cincinnati or Cleveland, Ohio at the same time. So they actually have a little spat, I guess. Well, it can't just be one, but... Um, <laughs> It's great that there were two at the same time. So anyway, uh, yeah, so recounting the experience of um, Mayor Hatcher's election and the enthusiasm that brought to her and her community. Um, There's parts of the story, if you visit uh, our website, welcomeproject.valpo.edu, and you put Black Mecca into the search bar, you'll get a video version of this story that has some more detail in it, too. So we might bring in some pieces of that. If we'd like, but what stood out um, to you all? Reagan, have you heard this story before? I, okay. Yes. Uh, sorry, I was nodding. Yes, I have heard the story. <laughs> <laughs> nodding doesn't translate it on does radio. <laughs> yeah, no, I've heard this story before. Um, and if I remember correctly, this is like a three parter, right? Or Well, we have a lot of stories from the same storyteller. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Yes. So, um, yes, I've definitely heard this person speak a couple times, and I've definitely heard this story before. It's a. Uh, I don't know. It's one of those, despite knowing what we know now, um, I really enjoy hearing this speaker. Like, this is one of the favorite, like, my favorite speaker you, you guys have ever interviewed. Um, like, I like almost all of her. Almost all of her videos are really cool to listen to. Um, but it's really nice, again, even knowing what we know now, to hear about that excitement and that enthusiasm and um, what a milestone that was at the time, especially for like a young black person living in Gary at that time. Do you want to just clarify what you mean, knowing what we know now? Knowing how Gary is perceived okay. and treated um, both like individually and kind of like legislatively now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. This always, like, the the idea of, like, electing Mayor Hatcher during this time, it sort of resonates in a way for me. Um, just, like, obviously not in the experience, but just, like, I, I can understand the concept because I remember, like, we would have been, Reagan and I would have been in, like, fifth grade when Obama was elected mm-hmm. in 2008. And so, like, I remember that sort of, like, big excitement. Like, I remember, like, you could feel, like, how important that was. And like it, just to like think that that was so important in 2008 to elect the first black president, and like what would it have been like to elect the first black mayor of your city, and like during the civil rights, like that is so powerful. Like that has to be like the most ecstatic time. Like I couldn't even imagine that would be so exciting. But it's just. I don't know. I just like I, I I love these stories, and and she's not the only one who sort of talked about his 
like leading up to the election and supporting him in the election. But you, but in other speakers as well, we just hear this sort of like the excitement and this sort of like palpable like energy in the room that like, I don't know, there's just something sort of building and it just feels really communal the way that's, that it's described. Yeah. And I think, I mean, um, Obama was a community organizer too, right? Mm -hmm. Before he went into politics or even while he was in politics. And I I feel like a lot of the energy that was happening in 2008, um, specifically for people who participated in that community organizing, going around, knocking door to door. I'm I'm guessing you weren't doing that in fifth grade, (laughs) although, you know, you potentially could be. Um, But I think that's also here, right? Like this was a really strong community organizing effort to make this election happen. Mm -hmm. And part of the story that did get edited out for the radio version was um, passing out charms suckers um, that had stickers on it that said Hatcher. And she was uh, putting the stickers on and then passing them out on the bus and saying, go home and tell your parents they have to vote for Mayor Hatcher. So she was actually active in the campaigning, which then I would feel like, well, it's kind of like you, Reagan. I mean, you've been organizing for unionization at your Starbucks. And like to get to see that realized in this first step um, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but being a participant makes the victory that much sweeter? Question mark. I mean, I think for me at least, yeah, I would say that. I would say that. I don't know. Maybe there's some community member who was really banking on that, but I think it was, it was pretty significant for for me and my story. Yeah. 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 So I think some of that enthusiasm comes from the grassroots work that was happening at that time, too. Why do you think that the speaker said that she wouldn't want to be anywhere else in the world? What did you make of that? For me, I think it's like not only did Hatcher get elected, but then that drew people to the city. So the kind of energy and dynamics that would feel in terms of like who you could go see a concert with. Um, there's a really active music scene in um, Gary with the record labels at the time too. So just the, and, and music, right, is often so celebratory. I mean, it does other things for us too, but just generating that kind of energy. Um, and then politi- politicians coming, like national politicians coming. There was a lot of attention to Gary from D.C. in terms of investment. But maybe even more for this speaker, she doesn't talk about it in this edited story. But I think we talked about it in the interview in 1972. That was the Black Political Caucus. Um, I think I'm not getting that name right. That convened in Gary, Indiana. So it was all the major players across the whole spectrum of black politics whether you were a kind of traditional old school black politician or you were black power, like take down the man, take down the um, institutions. And everybody convened on Gary. So it, it's this feeling that your city is at the center and that um, you get to be where it's all unfolding. Um, so... I, th- I think that's at least in large part why she wouldn't have wanted to be anywhere else, because then you'd miss 
you'd miss all of that. <laughs> I'm really interested in what it would have been like. And it, she does talk about this, but just in general, like, what's that like growing up in that? Like, that is, I don't know. That's so bizarre. That's so cool. But I guess I can't say that because, like, 2008 Obama, like, I know what it was like to grow up in that. But it just, it feels like she was obviously more involved and, like. Yeah, her family, too. She, yeah, so she yeah. was in it, yeah. So I just, I wonder what it's like now and in the past for, like, a lot of children of activists, I guess, is now what I'm thinking about. Like, what does that look like for you? What is that like being in that all the time? Yeah, and don't we often think about um, activists and children of activists? It's always the struggle part that's front and center. Mm-hmm. And this is the reveling and the building and the getting to try out what you've envisioned um and there's a lot of motivation that comes with that i think that it's possible that we could experience that in smaller communities like i I think about the valparaiso university in 2008 when um, President then President Heckler had the diversity summit on campus and that initiated this whole swell of faculty and staff and student engagement. Um, we had a lot of different committees operating at the time and there was a, a sense that we were in it together like and we were going to try to kind of see our way forward to the vision we had of the university as a place that wasn't just more diverse, but was also more inclusive. So I I remember those times feeling very heady in a kind of way. I don't know how, and I I don't necessarily want to go too far forward in the story of Gary, because I I do feel like we need to recognize and name and um, own the victories and not move too quickly to the next set of struggles. Um, but I, yeah, at, at Valparaiso University, there was that kind of cycle. Um, backlash gets introduced and people are getting sort of exhausted by the extra work they're doing and things can um, shift emotionally or energetically pretty quickly. I don't know if if Gary really had that same experience of like, did activists feel like the overwhelm or the exhaustion, or if it was just the forces that were arraigned at that point in America's history um, in terms of the national government change when Nixon was in office? And there's a lot of backlash that could not be, um, it was hard to ride out in a certain way. But hmm. anyway. Everybody should celebrate things when good things happen. That is the lesson. That is what I am hearing from Allison, is we need to take time to celebrate and to to note our notable things. And to be able to bring them forward, too, is like, I mean, this storyteller is still active in the region. You know, like, Mm -hmm. it's not as if when conditions change and backlash kind of reasserts itself in the moment as what's on the crest um that the work stops and the joy and community ends it just takes on a different tenor no i think it's lovely i think you know again we all know but at the same time like i do and i've said this before i do feel like sometimes it takes a couple of failures and a couple of losses to build up to one big win Mm. Um, and I think me and a lot of other people, I know the people in this room, we're still, we're hoping for another big win for Gary. We're rooting mm. for Gary. They deserve one. 
Yeah, yeah. And I think um, it can be important to remember that the actual kind of reputation that Gary has in the region is actually rooted in the structural racism mm-hmm. <laughs> and not in the character of the people mm-hmm. who live in Gary. And, you know, Gary being a place where I wouldn't want to be anywhere else in the world is a, a good reminder of that, how solid and supportive and connected that community was at the time, and the black community in particular. I mean, another part of the story that was um, edited for the radio version was um, the storyteller contrasting Glen Park and Miller Beach. Um, and Miller Beach has a interesting, its own interesting kind of history of how it fits into and how it presses up, up against and resists segregation. Um, but there were a lot of white liberal Democrats in Miller Beach that were a huge part of this push to organize and, and were a part of Hatcher's campaign. So I think that there it's not just our black storyteller who didn't want to be anywhere else in the world. It's also all of the people that were mobilizing for Hatcher's election. And many of those people are still in Miller Beach and Gary right now and are other contributors to the Flight Paths Initiative as a story. Mm-hmm. So any final words today? Mm. Just thank you to our storytellers. Yeah, it's great that we get entrusted with this, both the history and then the personal mm-hmm. side of the experience mm-hmm. of what it feels like to live history. All right, well, thank you for joining us today. Um, before we send you off all together, we like to urge people to check out WVLP's full schedule of shows at WVLP.org. We highly recommend Morning Black, which airs live every Saturday morning at 8 a.m. And again on Thursday at 2 and Fridays at 9. Morning Black stands for Building Leaders in Cultural Knowledge, and they focus on the concerns and issues that impact underrepresented communities of color, especially here in Northwest Indiana. So check them out. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to our sponsors, Asana Yoga Center at asanacenter.com and Roots Market Cafe at rootsmarketcafe.com. Both are open for business, and you can visit their websites to learn more. We here at Welcome Project Radio love to support our local businesses. And thanks to Kelly and Michael Marakna, who believe in supporting diversity, learning, and growth. You can find us online at welcomeproject.valpo.edu and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to support WVLP and our show, you can make a donation by going to wvlp.org support.